Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Tonight, we are scuba diving with pioneering underwater explorer and filmmaker, Jill Heiner. Jill has dived deeper into caves than any woman in history. Recognized as a leading technical diver, she is one of the world's experts on rebreather technology and has been featured in Time Magazine, PBS, National Geographic, and on Hollywood movie sets. We're here on location with Jill Heinerth outside of High Springs, Florida, and there's more cows here than there are people just north of Gainesville. And Jill, thank you so much for meeting with me and talking with me today. Tell me about your childhood. Where did you grow up and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up in Canada, not too far from Toronto. At the time, it was a small little town, Cooksville, which has now grown into a major metropolis, Mississauga. And my family was really into the outdoors for, for so many reasons. My parents had a huge appreciation for the natural world and encouraged us to explore. I mean, I grew up in a time when we were sent out early in the morning to go explore the world and then I grew up in a place in Mississauga where it was safe and wonderful and, and parents encouraged us to explore the world. So in the morning we were kicked out the front door and told to be back by the time the street lights went on. And on our bicycles or hiking, we you know, would travel out through the woods and um, explore the local area. And then on weekends, our big thing with my family was to go hiking or canoe tripping. I remember it was a huge decision in my family to make a financial investment in a canoe. And we decided as a family that this would be something we were going to spend $200 on this canoe. But my dad kept saying this would give us a lifetime of adventures. And we were little enough, the three kids, that mom and dad and the three kids could all pile into the canoe and we could go off to Algonquin Park and go on a canoe trip together for a weekend. And we did that often, whether it was up for a camping weekend or whether it was just locally in Bronte Creek or the Credit River or someplace down in uh, Lake Ontario. But we were always using that canoe. And my sister still has it, gosh, you know, 40 40 years later, my sister's still using that canoe. So it did indeed provide a lifetime of adventures for 200 bucks. Good investment. So Jill, what adventures do you find yourself doing these days? Pretty much everything I do um, that you know gives me joy involves something in the outdoors. My husband and I love to hike and cycle together. Um, we paddle. We have a couple of kayaks and a canoe, and there's some beautiful rivers around here. And then, of course, my, my real passion, which is also my vocation, is, is diving. So whether that's diving in a, in a local spring or on a trip on some beautiful reef or you know, deep inside the caves, which I call the, the womb of Mother Earth, diving is, is really my passion. And I suppose a lot of my outdoor adventure really does revolve around water. I, I just uh, love being in, on, and under the water. Jill, tell me about your first time that you were underwater. You know, as a child, we watched Jacques Cousteau's Undersea Adventures on Sunday nights, and then the Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom. 
<laughs> and that was a big deal. I mean, television was highly monitored in my household. There weren't too many things you were allowed to watch, and we weren't allowed to watch very often. And on Sunday nights, we would not only be allowed to watch television, but uh, we were allowed to eat in the living room, <laughs> which was a big deal, so not around the table. <laughs> and, and we watched Jacques Cousteau and Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And I suppose that really fueled a lot of my really early ideas about adventure. And I knew that I wanted to be a diver from the earliest age. I remember watching Jacques Cousteau, and it wasn't just the things that he was seeing. It wasn't just the colorful fish and the beautiful reefs, but it was also the exciting destinations because every week he was off in some other part of the world that I had never even imagined before. And, you know, growing up in Canada in this, you know, colder climate, these undersea worlds were like total fantasy to me. They were unreal. And um, so I always wanted to be a diver. I begged my parents to be a diver as a, as a young kid. And I remember having a mask and a snorkel and swimming around in the lakes and loving that. And my mom and dad said, oh, you know, people don't really dive in Canada. It, it's too cold, dear. But I was swimming at the cottage in 50-degree water and I was taking synchronized swimming lessons and springboard diving and paddling and and I just I did everything else that I could do to be in or on the water but it wasn't until I was 16 years old that I had my very first chance to you know breathe on scuba so with all these visions of Jacques Cousteau in my head I was working at a swimming pool and the boss said Jill you know how to work the scuba gear don't you and I said well, yes, of course, <laughs> which was a complete lie, but I was just <laughs> dying to use it. So he said, okay, well, I need you to get in the pool. We've got some broken tiles on the bottom. We need to you know, figure out what needs to be fixed, and can you just go have a look and let me know and pick up the pieces? I'm like, oh, yeah, no problem. So I go into this closet on the side of the pool deck. I open up the door. I knew where the scuba gear was and walk into this smelly closet and the chlorine scent is you know wafting in the air and there's this old tank this beat up tank and a bleached out bcd that's like the jacket that you wear and then there's this like contraption that looks like an octopus of just hoses and things hanging off of hoses and i'd seen it on television but this is the first time i'd actually held a scuba regulator in my hands and so I picked it up, and I looked at it, and really quickly tried to reason through how this whole thing might go together, <laughs> these three pieces. So I took the jacket, the BCD, and I realized, well, that's got to attach to the tank to hold it on my back. And then this regulator, this thing that I breathe from, I thought, oh, okay, here's something that appears to match the size of the valve. I guess this hooks together like this. And, and so piece by piece, I, I put the thing together, and then I remember just turning on the tank valve and I was scared to death that something was going to like blow up <laughs> you know, so, so I turn on the scuba tank and you know hear this thing come to life and the hoses firm up and it was just like the monster was coming alive and I thought ooh this thing actually looks like it's going to work you know and I picked up the second stage the part that you put in your mouth and just really like cautiously took the first breath like on the surface in this stinky old closet and um, thought, wow, I think I can actually use this. <laughs> so I got into the swimming pool. I put this thing on and I remember just dropping below the surface. And here I am in this pool where, you know, 
Seven out of ten of the last kids in the last group have just peed in it. You know, there's floating hairballs. It's a nasty place, and I suddenly have the full, crystal clear mask view of everything underwater. And for most people, that might be incredibly gross. But for me, the visions of Jacques Cousteau were just roaming through my head. I was finally breathing underwater, and it was magic. So from then on, I was just obsessed with finding a way to take a class and be able to do this properly. Jill, what was your first epic underwater adventure? Well, I think my first epic underwater adventure was still just learning to scuba dive. I learned in uh, a local pool, but when you when you take a scuba class, you have to do a bunch of classroom sessions, but then you have to do four open water dives to prove that everything that you've learned has stuck and that you're ready to be set off on your own into the world. And so I went to Tobermory, Canada. Tobermory is the home to Fathom 5 Underwater Marine Park. It's a national park underwater in Canada, and it's full of amazing shipwrecks, 200-year-old schooners, beautiful wooden boats that still have anchors sitting on the deck. They're still intact, sitting on the bottom, much the same as they looked when they went down. And so my four open-water dives were there in Tobermory. The first dive, I remember dropping down under the water, and it was cold. It was, you know, 37-degree water. It was the springtime in Canada, and I'm wearing a thick wetsuit and big, fat gloves and a huge, thick hood in some attempt to try and keep warm. And we had to kneel on the bottom in order to do these skills, performance drills for our instructor. And I knelt down on the bottom, and this neutron bomb of loose clay silt just blew up into the water column and obliterated the vision of everything around me. And I remember my dive partner reaching out and holding my hand close by, just waiting for the instructor to come around. So again, for most people, that might be not a very pleasant experience. But for me, it was just like the thrill, the adventure of of finally getting my diving certification. So, I mean, to me, that was a huge, cool adventure and an accomplishment in my life. I, at the time, had an advertising business in Toronto. And so I was working in the creative world. I loved my job. I worked way too hard and way too long. And my joy was getting away from that and doing things outdoors. So very quickly, I worked my way through the ranks, became a scuba instructor, and was teaching scuba in the evenings and driving up to Tobermory on the weekend and teaching classes. And pretty quickly, I realized that I had to find a way to combine those two loves in life, my creative passions and the underwater world. And so I left everything behind. I sold my business. I um, left Toronto. I left my country. <laughs> you know, left my family behind and uh, moved to the Cayman Islands with just a suitcase and my diving gear and moved to this tiny little 12-room resort on the east end of the island, the unpopulated side of the island. And I uh, started teaching scuba, doing some marketing for the resort and trying to figure out how to how to blend these careers and, and find a way to keep doing this in my life. Slowly, the pieces kind of came together and I further developed this passion for cave diving during my visits to Florida. I knew that somehow this would all fit. And I moved to Florida and started getting involved in media in underwater, and and that opened a lot of doors. And then I also started volunteering and organizing 
expeditionary projects in cave diving. And bringing all of those things together, just I wasn't exactly sure you know, where the next paycheck was going to come from or what the next opportunity might be, but I knew that it would happen, and I knew that it would work if I just keep following my passion. And it did. It did. The doors kept opening, and the opportunities kept coming together, and somehow I've managed to forge a career now that, that pulls it all together. You'd asked me about my first big expedition and that would have been in 1995 when I first moved to the states I was going to babysit somebody's dive shop for a month while they went off on an expedition to Mexico and I uh, sat down and talked with Paul Heinerth and he said you know can you watch my shop I said, sure, you know, I, I could take care of that. I said, but I think I better, you know, go home to Canada. I have an old car in Canada. I better get it, bring it down here so I have something to drive around while I'm, while I'm here. And he said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go with you so you have a driving companion. On the way back from Canada, we stopped in uh, Washington and uh, visited with a friend, Dr. Bill Stone. And he was the expedition leader for the project that Paul was about to go away on. And we spent a couple of days there just dreaming about this expedition, talking about what was going to happen and helping him fix regulators and you know, doing all kinds of stuff in preparation for this project. And Bill said, Jill, why don't you come on the project? And I just looked at him and I said, yeah, I'd give my eye teeth to come and, you know, carry water for this project. <laughs> I said, but I promised Paul I was going to watch his dive shop down in South Florida. And Bill turned to Paul and said, Paul, can't you find somebody else to do that? And Paul looked at me and he said, yeah, I think I can. And the next thing you know, I was on my way driving across the Straits to uh, central Mexico, to the Sierra Madres Mountains in, in central Mexico, to go diving in what may eventually be the deepest cave in the world. It's still being explored today, almost 20 years later. Bill's off on another project in, in another month. But during that project, we hiked down an unbelievable mountain range to establish a base camp in a river valley. And in the river valley is the bottom end of this cave system that travels through the inside of these mountains and dumps all its water into the river. And our job was going to be to explore from the bottom end up to try and meet up with some of the exploration that Bill had done from the top end down. And we were there in this base camp for a, a solid month of unbelievably exciting um, adventure and cave diving opportunities. And that was, that was my first taste of real expeditionary cave diving. When we come back, we'll talk more about cave diving and how it is different from other types of diving. But Jill, let's go ahead and play a song. What song reminds you of your early adventures when you went down to Mexico and dived in the caves and such? One of my favorite songs would be um, Cat Stevens' Miles from Nowhere. <laughs> I think that pretty much tells the story of my life. Back to Mandela and the Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Tonight, we are scuba diving with pioneering underwater explorer and filmmaker Jill Heinerth. Jill has dived deeper into caves than any woman in history. 
Recognized as a leading technical diver, she is one of the world's experts on rebreather technology and has been featured in Time Magazine, PBS, National Geographic, and on Hollywood movie sets. Jill, what are the main differences between cave diving and other types of diving around the world? Most people get involved in sport scuba diving or open water diving. And in open water diving, you're you know, inhaling gas from a scuba tank and exhaling and making bubbles. And at any point during your dive, you can just easily swim to the surface. So if things go wrong and you have a problem, you just swim up and everything's okay. Cave diving is part of a form of diving that we call technical diving. And in, in technical and cave diving, oftentimes we can't come to the surface. Our problems have to be solved underwater, underground. And for me, in some cases, two miles back inside a cave, a long way from help. So you have to be you know, managing your life support under what are sometimes very challenging situations. Most people look at a cave and they're kind of repelled by the darkness. I'm inspired by looking into a dark doorway because that's something that's filled with possibility and potential and exploration and discovery. And, and caves are really one of the last bastions of the unknown. It, it's an opportunity to be an earthbound you know, aquanaut and go places that nobody has ever seen before. Cave diving for me is like swimming inside the veins of Mother Earth because caves carry drinking water. They carry the lifeblood of the planet and they bring nourishment to everything topside. The, you know, the trees and the forests and everything are here because of the water that courses beneath our feet. I get an opportunity to swim in those places and to me that's truly remarkable. But cave diving comes with some inherent dangers, some very serious dangers. Because you're a long way from help and because you've got to solve your problems underground, caves can get silted out, meaning that you have absolutely no visibility. There are many inherent dangers that come with cave diving. One is that you've always got this roof over your head and you're a long way from home. It's like, you know, we send an astronaut out on a, on a spacewalk and they're, they've got life support on their back, but there's usually a mission control that's operating that and taking care of everything. And they've got three guys inside the space shuttle that are watching over them, and they're tethered to the space shuttle. Well, when you go inside an underwater cave, you're carrying your own life support, you're managing it, and you're carrying all the backups necessary in case something goes wrong. There is no mission control to call for help. You're on your own, and you have to be self-sufficient and able also to rescue a buddy if something goes wrong. So caves can silt out, meaning you can disturb the bottom sediments, or even your bubbles hitting the ceiling of the cave can completely wipe out the visibility and make it impossible to see, meaning that you have to come out of the cave following along a thin string. So you can imagine yourself you know, in a room with no lights, and having to, you know, crawl around the furniture and underneath the chairs in tight enclosed spaces. And your job is to find your way to the stairwell and then crawl your way up the stairwell and then, you know, weave in between some other chairs and underneath the bed to get to the window and climb up the outside of the house to get to the roof. You know, that's the kind of thing that you would have to do with no visibility following a thin string out of the cave to safety. Things can snag your equipment. People can become stuck. Equipment can fail. Suddenly you can't breathe and you have to find some other way around your problem. 
So it requires uh, a, a very um, steady emotional demeanor. <laughs> it requires someone who can just practically think about the next step to get themselves out of trouble rather than allowing the emotions of the moment to take over their brain. Um, so it takes someone who's very proficient with the technology used in underwater exploration and then also really calm in the face of danger. What about the bubbles? Some of these caves are completely underwater, correct? There's no air at all in them. So is it okay that the bubbles are going in these caves and staying there? Most of the caves that I swim in don't have any place where you can surface into an air pocket. And so your bubbles will hit the ceiling of the cave. Or sometimes I'm diving with equipment called a rebreather where we recirculate the bubbles within the unit and we don't make any bubbles as we swim through the cave. When bubbles do hit the ceiling, they tend to knock dirt off the ceiling, silt off the ceiling, and it kind of rains down on top of you. Sometimes even loose rock can sort of rain down from the ceiling on top of you. But those bubbles actually find their way through the matrix of the rock and try and rise upward through, through the substrate, basically. So they do disappear. In cases, sometimes, though, they trap in the ceiling and create these little pockets. And when you look up at them, they look like the mercury from a thermometer that you played with on a table as a kid. <laughs> I don't know if kids still do that, but we sure did when I was little. <laughs> um, so it looks like mercury on the ceiling. And so sometimes you get these little trap pockets that stay for a period of time. And they're beautiful. They're like little mirrors reflecting your own um, image back at you. Jill, let's talk about some of your expeditions that you did after you went to Mexico. I've had an incredible opportunity to travel to so many amazing places around the world in cave exploration. So from the Ural Mountains in Siberia to caves inside of icebergs in Antarctica. Last January, I was on the Libyan border of Egypt in desert oases looking for caves inside of these springs in the middle of the desert. I've traveled to you know, Australia, Mexico, the Bahamas, all over the place, and, and I've been so fortunate to see these amazing environments and oftentimes be the very first person to explore a place never seen by, by man. And it, it's quite a privilege. It's, it's a huge privilege to have these opportunities. And it's also ignited a very deep environmental ethic for me because as I've traveled around the world and seen how people are connected with their water resources that I'm oftentimes swimming inside of, I understand what a precious and fragile element this is and how critical it is to our life. You know, there's nothing that's more important to us than our water supply. It's only a matter of days before you know, we can't survive without water. Somebody who's without a source of clean, healthy drinking water for their family would do almost anything in order to provide it. And people without clean water are desperate, and desperation leads to conflict on this planet. And if we don't provide everybody with a source of clean, fresh water, then they don't have any other opportunities. It breeds conflict. They don't have the ability to take care of their families, to pursue education, to start businesses. And so all of these expeditions and all these places that I've traveled to around the planet have really brought me back to this one great understanding, and that's that you know, we are water, and we survive with water and not without it. And so I hope that as I travel around and see these unique places and unique connections with people and their water resources, that I can help people get more connected. Because if people see the remarkable places 
that are water places on this planet and learn to protect them and understand how they're connected to them, then I think we'll have a, a safer and better world for the future. Jill, what was the most remarkable project that you've ever been involved in? I had the opportunity to go to Antarctica and dive inside the largest moving object on the planet. So back in 2000, an iceberg called B-15 calved off of the Ross Ice Shelf, and it started its journey in the Ross Sea, moving away from Antarctica. My creative colleague, Wes Skiles, was really interested in going to Antarctica as well. I think that was a life dream for him. And ironically, in the sort of visioning of a project in Antarctica, this iceberg calving happened. And a scientist friend of ours, Dr. Greg Stone, was interested in some of the early warning signs of global climate change and also interested in what happens when an iceberg the size of Connecticut falls off of Antarctica and starts moving out into the ocean and breaking up. What happens to the penguins that are living on it? What happens to all the animals that live along the edge of this place? Do they move with it? Do they find some other place to go? And so we conceived of this expedition to go to Antarctica and intercept the iceberg, and get on top of it, and climb it, and then cave dive inside of caves inside of the iceberg. And Wes went up to National Geographic and he pitched the project to the board of directors for the magazine. And they said, wow, you know, there's, there's caves inside of these icebergs? And Wes said, hell yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's caves inside of these icebergs. And uh, he left the meeting and Emery Kristoff put his arm around Wes and he said, Wes, that's the biggest crock of shit I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) And Wes kind of laughed. He said, well, you know, we think there'll be caves. We don't know for sure, but um, we're pretty sure there's going to be caves in this iceberg. So we're going to check it out. So we planned a journey from New Zealand with the goal to follow Shackleton's historic route to Antarctica. So we left from Littleton and struck out across the Southern Ocean, a 12-day crossing in a 118-foot boat, encountering 60-foot waves in the worst seas on the planet. It's absolutely, unbelievably dangerous to cross the Southern Ocean through these latitudes. And I, I, I think that was probably one of the riskiest things I've ever done in my life. But 12 days later, we were there in the Ross Sea, looking for our iceberg and and the greatest adventure of my life. We spent 60 days in Antarctica and completely isolated from society. You know, every couple of days we had some radio relay contact with either a local fishing vessel, there were a couple of Russian fishing vessels in the Ross Sea that that summer, and also with a woman who operated a radio in New Zealand at the very southern tip called Bluff Fisherman's Radio. And it was her hobby to keep in contact with anyone that was down in Antarctica if she could reach them. So every few days we would get contact with her or a relay from another boat from her. And it was this comforting voice of, of the world. <laughs> you know, we knew that there was, there was someone who was looking out after us. We knew there was someone that would miss us if something happened. And uh, it was really, you know, really very comforting to talk to her, Mary, every couple of days. We eventually did encounter pieces of B-15 that was continuing to break up as it moved around the Ross Sea. And we did indeed eventually, you know, 30 days into the project, find an absolutely incredible cave system inside this iceberg and also found a remarkable colony of life that was growing beneath icebergs and the tunnels and conduits that are sort of 
cut away by the moving water moving through the ice. Icebergs sometimes get stuck on the ocean floor, and when they do, any cracks are sort of taken advantage of by the water flow and enlarged. And yet, inside these tunnels, these pathways, is the opportunity for things to grow on the seafloor, things that would normally be scoured away and crunched up by the icebergs rolling over top of them and mashing everything along the way. And so underneath some of these icebergs, we found these gardens of colorful life, sea anemones and sponges and tunicates and all kinds of interesting crustaceans just abundantly moving around in these, these corridors, these ice corridors. So we swam through them and explored and documented new life. And it was just absolutely a dream come true. But also one of the most, you know, sort of humanly, I guess, challenging projects of my life. If you put, you know, 18 people on a boat in Antarctica for 60 days in very difficult conditions, sometimes in very life-threatening conditions, whether it's from the seas or getting trapped in the ice or or from the dangers of some of the diving and climbing activities. Um, It's very, very stressful, and not everybody copes all that well with it. We had a cook that quit 30 days into the expedition, and you, you can't quit 30 days into an expedition in Antarctica. I mean, you can lock yourself in your room, but there's no going home. <laughs> and when you have, you know, difficulties, of the psychological difficulties of the remote operations and, and dangers, it can be very, very trying on people. So I, I learned a lot about, about people in that project, and I learned a lot about how to staff future projects and, and get along with people in those challenging situations. So Jill, we're here in your home, and I saw a sign that said more people have walked on the moon. Where was this that you dove, that more people have walked on the moon than dive here? Last year, I was involved in a project in Bermuda with NOAA. Um, It was a search for Bermuda deep caves. I've been on several expeditions to Bermuda, uh, but this one was quite unique. Bermuda is a volcanic seamount, and there's a limestone cap on top of the volcanic rock. Yet Bermuda's a very, very young island. There's a lot of caves inside that limestone cap that we know as Bermuda today. And they're absolutely remarkably beautiful, delicately decorated caves that were formed when that part of of Bermuda was not submerged. So these caves are now filled with water, but were formed when dry. So I've done lots of exploration in there, but the the interesting thing is, is that we find animals in those caves that are some of the oldest living fossils on the planet, meaning there's little animals in these caves that we see in fossil records that are tens, if not hundreds of millions of years old, and these animals haven't changed at all. They have not evolved. And so Dr. Tom Iliff, the ex- expedition leader, was interested in diving at levels in the ocean around Bermuda that would have represented former sea levels, and perhaps find caves within the volcanic basement of Bermuda. Some of the animals that we found in Bermuda are completely endemic, not just to the island, not just to a cave, but to a particular room in a cave, meaning these animals don't exist anywhere else on Earth that we know of today, other than in the fossil record. So how did they get there in this really young island, these ancient creatures? You know, did they swim up from the deep ocean through cracks in the rock and in between grains of sand? 
or some other way. We don't know. So our goal was to go to the very edges of the Bermuda Bank and the Challenger and Argus seamounts that are completely submerged beneath the ocean near Bermuda and do the deepest dives ever conducted in Bermuda. Up until this point, no diver had ever been deeper, no manned dive had ever been deeper than 200 feet in Bermuda. ROVs and submarines had been deeper and had a look around the seamount, but nobody with the human brain and hands had ever been any deeper. And during the project, we actually more than doubled that depth. We went as deep as 460 feet off of Challenger Seamount, and we brought back biological samples, we brought back rocks, we brought back, for me, the videography and photography to show scientists what it looks like in this twilight zone where the light is so filtered from the surface that it's, it's a, a really different set of, of living creatures on those, on those deep reefs. So yeah, more people have been to the moon than have been on these um, deep walls in Bermuda. There's been all of three of us now <laughs> below, you know, below 300 feet in, in Bermuda. And so that was a real privilege to be a part of. Some of the things that we brought back from that project will fuel scientific exploration and discovery for, for decades. Jill, let's play another song. What song reminds you of your outdoorsy lifestyle? I would say um, Michael Franti, the name of the song is Hey, 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 but I, I actually wasn't even sure of the song title because I always think of the lyrics of don't ever let them tell you that it can't be done uh, because that, that's sort of a real theme for me is, is, you know, adventure is just a puzzle that needs an imagination put on it to figure out how something that's never been done can be done. So don't ever let anyone tell you it can't be done. Tonight, we are scuba diving with pioneering underwater explorer and filmmaker Jill Heiner. Jill has dived deeper into caves than any woman in history. Recognized as a leading technical diver, she is one of the world's experts on rebreather technology and has been featured in Time Magazine, PBS, National Geographic, and on Hollywood movie sets. Jill, okay, here's the question. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and I'm going to ask you to picture yourself just going underwater now, and you're about to go into a cave that you haven't explored yet, and maybe no one else has explored. Take us through everything, step by step, what you're doing, and how you're keeping yourself calm. The preparation for exploring someplace that nobody's ever been before is a real mix of excitement, a lot of thoughtful risk assessment, you know, every time I dive on some of these extreme projects, I don't just think about myself. I think about my husband, and I think about the fact that I'm making decisions for both of us. I'm taking on risks for both of us. So it's got to be worth it. This can't just be some, you know, heroic, self-centered you know, <laughs> kind of thing. It's, it's, to me, it's got to be something that's bigger than me and more important and, and worth it. 
So I'm thinking about that. I'm, I'm thinking about Robert. But I'm also thinking carefully through all of the technology I have to use. When I'm using a rebreather, it takes a tremendous amount of time to set it up and put together all the pieces, pack the scrubber, fill the tanks, analyze the tanks, assemble the equipment. This is a life support package. I've got to test it and use a checklist and go through every single point to make sure that it's going to operate fully. And then I need to take along all the necessary redundant pieces in case it goes south in case something breaks and fails I want to come home at the end of the day and so I've got to carry all of that with me sometimes that's meant carrying three to five hundred pounds of equipment underwater a scooter that pulls me through the water and a backup one to get me home all kinds of extra scientific equipment and most of the time in my case a camera for filming and bringing back the photographs from these wild places so there's a lot to do sometimes you know 24 hours of preparation just for one particular mission but once I'm underwater and all of that's done I have rehearsed everything in my mind I've thought about everything that could go wrong and I've and I've imagined how I can work myself successfully to a positive outcome but as soon as my head goes under the water that's all gone everything's gone the busyness and the sounds of the world are erased and I'm in my underwater element. And for me, I think I'm more comfortable underwater than I am topside. It's this, it's back to the womb. And I'm fully 100% concentrated on the mission at hand. There isn't another thought about anything other than what I'm doing and how to do it well. But there's definitely the excitement of and the privilege of seeing things that nobody's seen before. And I remember on one project with a diving partner, this is the longest diving mission of my life. We were spending five hours at a depth of 300 feet using rebreathers and doing a very complex task of sending radio signals to the surface so a team could walk above us and know exactly where we were beneath the earth. And we had five hours to get the job done. So two hours into our dive, we found ourselves at the end of the line, the end of the explored and known passages. And I looked at Brian and he looked at me and the two of us giggled like schoolgirls. <laughs> partly because of the excitement and partly because we were breathing helium. <laughs> so <laughs> I look at my big, you know, manly brother there and he's laughing like a schoolgirl because we knew that we now had an hour of time to explore where nobody had been and lay line into the unknown. And when we first set off, like we, we didn't expect to be there. We didn't expect to have this exploration opportunity. This, this dive was about a job, you know? So we got to the end of the line and I said, go, go, go. And Brian hooked on a reel and he moved five feet into the unknown and jammed his reel. <laughs> so I, I couldn't even repeat on radio what he was swearing at that point. <laughs> but, but very quickly, he got himself regrouped, got his reel operating again, and started unraveling this piece of string into the unknown. And as he did, I started pulling equipment off of him to make him more streamlined so that he could head forward into these small spaces. And we ended up exploring another new 1,000 feet of passages inside the Earth. And when we returned from our dive, we finished our bottom time at five hours, but we then had 16 and a half hours of decompression ahead of us. So there's a large penalty to pay for those explorations uh, at, at depth. And so by that point, all I'm thinking about is, 
I'm hungry. I'm tired. <laughs> I want to get out of the water. Um, but there's quite a commitment for, for dives of that nature. So you've got lots of time to think before you're topside again. Let's talk a little bit about decompression and what comes into play when you're diving deep, deep, deep. Let's talk about the limits of the deepest a person can dive. There's a lot of things that, that limit us from just diving to the bottom of the ocean. One is physiology. The human body um, is subjected to pressure as you swim underwater. Anyone that's like dived to the bottom of a swimming pool and felt the pressure on their eyes or on their ears as they're in the swimming pool has, has understood the mechanics of pressure. The deeper we go, the more weight of water is pressing down on our bodies. We're able to manage those pressure changes okay, but what happens is that when we go deeper, we have to start using a stranger and stranger blend of exotic gases to dive with. So we don't breathe just like the air that we breathe here topside. We have to replace that gas with more and more helium the deeper we go. The reason we do that is because if you just go deep on air, you're actually going to experience something called narcosis, the rapture of the deep, kind of a drunkenness that comes over you from the nitrogen and the gas. So we use helium as a less dense gas to enable our minds to stay clear, but also to you know allow for the mechanics of breathing because helium is less dense. So there's more and more technology that's involved the deeper you go. And there's the physiological limits of the body. There's the technological limits of the crush depth of certain diving equipment. Really, you know, anything that's below 100 feet is getting into the realm of deep. And deeper technical dives have been done as deep as 1,200 feet. But out of all the people that have attempted to go that deep and even break 1,000 feet, there's been literally dozens of people that died trying. So it's a real limit of the human physiology. Jill, let's talk about the documentaries you've done and then your most recent project, We Are Water. I've been involved in a lot of documentary projects over the years for National Geographic, NOVA, Discovery Channel, uh, many different television outlets, and then also involved in a, a series on PBS called Water's Journey. But most recently, I've really taken all of my life experiences and summed them up in a project called We Are Water. We have a website, wearewaterproject.com, where um, we have a lot of different video elements and educational outreach elements to help teach people about water literacy. Because I think it's important to know where your water comes from, how you may be unintentionally polluting it, and how we can better conserve our freshwater resources for future generations. Because certainly everything, everything in life comes down to the quality and quantity and availability of fresh drinking water for humanity. And I think that that's one special thing that I can bring to the world. I can be the voice from inside the planet, this really unique viewpoint that is allowed to swim through your drinking water and tell you about the things that I see. So We Are Water, our documentary film, is it's a very, very personal story for me. I actually share a lot of my own sort of growing awareness of water issues and try and use my unique viewpoint to help people 
sort of embrace their own imagination and connection with water resources. Because I think when people have great adventure opportunities, you know, when a kid goes to a spring or their first canoe trip in life or just learns to swim, these are really landmark experiences and incredible opportunities that help them embrace our water planet and will help them want to protect it. Jill, thank you so much for inviting us into your home and providing tea and amazing stories. I really appreciate it. Let's end the show with three outdoor adventure tips. Wow. Outdoor adventure tips. I think you got to buy the best shoes that you possibly can. <laughs> That's always really important. Uh, I think my second tip would be give up on your hair and wear a bandana. <laughs> and the third tip is when you're traveling with someone with a traveling companion or when you're staffing an expedition I think what you need to look for are not necessarily the people that are best at their particular skill or craft but I think you need people that are versatile and open-minded and those are the the absolute best people to contribute to your team. Jill what song would you like to end the show with? Oh, this is an easy one. I think uh, we better end the show with a theme song uh, that we licensed for our film, which is We Are Water, uh, performed by Shay. Namaste. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the community's source for adventure information and inspiration, a locally harvested adventure series with a new episode coming out every week. I would like to thank my guest for this week, pioneering underwater explorer and filmmaker Jill Heiner. Jill has dived deeper into caves than any woman in history. Recognized as a leading technical diver, she is one of the world's experts on rebreather technology and has been featured in Time Magazine, PBS, National Geographic, and on Hollywood movie sets. Follow The Trail Less Traveled on Facebook or check out traillesstraveled.net to view pictures, read biographies, and archive previous episodes. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and my goal for the show is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Therefore, every week I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company or on location around the world in order for me to find these adventurers and interview them in their natural habitat. My adventure tip this week pertains to scuba diving, but really could pertain to any outdoor adventure. The word is relax. Being relaxed and comfortable underwater is key to a successful dive. If something happens, stop, breathe, Think, act. Do not rush to the surface. Well, that's it for this week's adventure, my friends. But until next week, get outside and shred the gnar. Because, as you know, the gnar simply cannot shred itself. <laughs>